Texas Business Minds, a presentation of the Texas Business Journals, brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas. Technology, data collection, and the ability to deliver at scale are why San Antonio SaaS-focused venture equity firm ScaleWorks acquired Import.io, installing Paul Lynch as CEO. In this episode, San Antonio Business Journal Editor-in-Chief Ed Arnold delves deeper into what it means for tech in South Texas and beyond. It is wonderful to have you with us, Paul. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. So I was just saying before we started that the moment you say a word, our audience is going to know you're not a Texan. So why don't you introduce yourself a little bit and just sort of let us know how you got here. Thank you, Ed. I see myself as part of the new, you know, emerging Irish Texan scene, um, <laughs> which we're driving. No, I'm not a Texan. I've been living in San Antonio since 2018. I moved my then, uh, well, still young family over. We came in, I've got three kids. One is a freshman now, and then we have a, we have a seven and a six grader here in, in Alamo Heights. Yeah, I came in in 18 to, to CEO a business with Scaleworks um, called Assembler. Prior to that, I'd been running businesses in New York and 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 some so with some offices around the Caribbean and the Pacific Rim. And before that, I was in telecom. So my path and eventual evolution into, into technology in, in San Antonio was an interesting one. But since we've got here in 18, we love it here. We find it very sort of family focused. Um, it answers a lot of the needs we have. You know, good structures, good systems. I mean, it's not as sort of vibrant, if you will. As uh, so your Austin kind of scene, but you know, I think you know at this stage of my life, the party doesn't end. It just it just changes. I'm sure you feel the same way, Ed. Absolutely. Uh, and that, re- that really that really suits us. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, it's one of the things I talk about a lot with with folks from out of town, which is that San Antonio is incredibly family oriented. There's very few, if any, events that you can do in town and not have your children be welcome with you at all ages. I, I moved here from Memphis. You do not bring your children to New Year's Eve parties uh, in downtown Memphis, <laughs> but that's not a problem here in San Antonio. Uh, and so I've, I have similarly, I found a really wonderful place to raise my kids. So I, I get why you got here. I understand yeah. why you feel comfortable. But also, let's talk about ScaleWorks a little bit, because that's sort of been the ecosystem you've been operating in since you got to San Antonio. So for those that don't know, you're the CEO of Import.io, which is inside the ScaleWorks portfolio. Uh, you've been involved with multiple companies inside the ScaleWorks portfolio, but let's set up the listeners. What is ScaleWorks exactly? Absolutely. So we call ScaleWorks venture equity. Okay. So to differentiate it from the two kind of prevailing investment models where you have venture capital and private equity, we sort of sit at the apex between both. Your venture capital kind of firms look to come in, take a minority interest in a high growth business with big potential. And then when that business, if it hockey sticks and they, they get some kind of exit event, it can return an entire fund, uh, a fund being the, the pool of money you have to invest. So you grab yourself a Facebook, you grab yourself a Google from a venture capital perspective, your funds elected. Okay. Private equity, completely the other side of this. Your big, big checks that are being written into mature companies, these checks are looking to derive their return from dividends, distributions, profit shares, et cetera, et cetera. 
They're not looking for hockey stick kind of growth. They're looking to bring, to move into sort of mature, older businesses and run their, their management processes to make them more efficient and to generate more capital. So, you know, what happens at the intersection of these two? What happens if you have a small business, so you're not going to attract a private equity um, kind of check, but your growth isn't going to hockey stick? Let's say you've been around sort of five, six, seven years and you haven't seen that hockey stick yet. What do you do? If VC is not going to back you, if you haven't shown the potential to hockey stick and private equity can't get any meaningful kind of distributions, you're sort of in a conundrum. That's where we go. I mean, we look at these kind of businesses where five to eight years old, typically distributed teams, never declining, but like, uh, you know, not crazy growth either. Sort of sub 10 million in revenue. That's where we sort of live. We say sub 10 million because private equity, typically they're not writing checks for anything that would be below 100 million, let alone 10 million. Venture capital, they need to see like the potential at least for large hockey stick growth. So those founders are sitting there. They've been doing this five to eight years. Uh, it, it hasn't worked out the way they wanted it many times for an infinite number of reasons. Uh, what do they do next? They take it to market, they hire a banker or they do it themselves. They're looking for a, you know, a 10x multiple in terms of revenue. It's not forthcoming. And then uh, like a fund like ourselves will come in and say, okay, we'll give you a, a fair valuation on your business. We'll give you the exit terms that you want in, in terms of the founder CEO and we execute. So we're not going to walk you down the garden path and then throw you in the pond. We're dealers. So we get the deals done and they're the businesses we target. And it, it's, I'm not going to say it's an underserviced area, but um, it certainly isn't as crazy as the kind of amount of venture capital funds we started seeing over the last sort of three to four years that that have emerged out of nowhere and have driven valuations in, in a lot of cases way too high for the value that sort of investors are putting their money in at or acquirers are, are getting. Right. Well, and I mean, there's lots of great examples of this we can go into where, you know, money's been puffed into companies that have exploded in value, but have sort of been full of hot air and collapsed under their own sort of, you know, heat, if you will. There's plenty of examples of that. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners instantly had a few that they thought of. We work. But uh, <laughs> but but what I find most interesting, and you and I talked about this before, which is what you're really talking about here are stable and successful growing businesses, really, right? Like you're not looking for, and I hate to say it, but like scrap heap, right? You're not looking for businesses that are on the inherent decline. You're looking for businesses that are growing, but they're not growing at that insane sort of you know, private equity slash venture capital levels that attract that those attention. But what you're getting, what you guys are buying at Scaleworks are functioning, growing businesses. So if we translate that to very old school, you know, business terminology, you're you're getting businesses that are growing at solid rates every year. They're just not explosive rates. If that is that appropriate? Is that a fair? Very, know? very, very appropriate. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we overlay like when we spoke previously, and I'll always say like like your valuation on the real evaluation on a strong business isn't only about growth. Is growth important? Of course, growth's important. Of course, right. but is it the only factor to consider when you're looking at an investment or you're looking at an acquisition? Absolutely not. If I'm growing my business from five to ten million dollars, and it costs me a hundred million dollars to do it, that's bad business. Right. It doesn't right. matter that I've doubled my revenue. If it's cost me 10 times what my revenue is to create that, that's not a good company. And like, I defy anyone to argue that point with me uh, and get me to see their position. What is the cost of growth? What are the unit economics of the individual business? If we've achieved growth in that business, you know, what's the forward potential? Is there an imminent technology threat in the market that's going to make the, the technology underpinning this growth irrelevant? Is there a competitor that's going to come into the space and suddenly start spending that 100 million for doubling the growth? 
thus destroying the market. All these things are important. What's the category? Is that category defensible? If I was showing growth over the previous three years, is there a forward path to future growth in this business because the category remains relevant? So these, these are all the things we look at. What makes us so lucky? No, nothing makes us so lucky. Like We believe in sales and marketing. We believe in common sense business practices of profit and reinvestment. We believe in sensible hiring. We believe in you know a culture and ethos within the business that is responsible. And there's nothing here that's groundbreaking. This, these are the right, fundamentals exactly. of business as written by Adam Smith. But somewhere right. along the line, we lost focus of this and we got into this kind of aggressive investment venture capital pattern that was grow, 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 growth answers and everything. Uh, you know, and there's been some yep. businesses that have done that and have had successful exits and good luck to them. But we're about creating sustainable, medium to long-term value in these businesses. And that's, we're buying businesses that have somehow you know, they haven't seen the growth that they would have wanted. We're overlaying our, our kind of business practices on them. And then when we sell them, we're, we're selling entities that, that show the potential for future growth, that show the potential for value, that, you know, at a certain point in time, if the acquirer of that business or ourselves for that matter wishes to turn this business from being a growth engine to a cash engine, that's possible too. I mean, ultimately, the reason why investors are putting money into businesses is because they want to see the potential to generate cash. There were notable like exceptions, Amazon and the letter to shareholders. Everyone knows about this. Sure. Um, but if Jeff Bezos decided tomorrow that he wanted to drop all the kind of future R&D um, projects that were happening in, in, in Amazon, et cetera, the business could generate cash. It just decides not to, but it has that potential. And I mean, I think that, you know, I said this to you before too, but you're singing my song. There's nothing that makes a big pool of money more frightened than being stagnant, right? And so yes. you see these sort of big inflows into something that's hot and then, you know, the dumb money kind of trail behind it, if you will, right? To sort of overinflating these things. But what I love so much about what you have done at Scaleworks over the years is you've brought back what to me was sort of bedrock enterprise you know, viewpoints about growth and cost and what you can do to grow those businesses. So let's let's talk a little bit about a few of them, if you will. We'll get to import because that's the newest, the newest one yep. that you're up here in the pile. But let's talk about some of the other businesses that have come through Scaleworks or are still a part of it that have been really good growth successes for you. Well, I'll talk to the ones that I led. Let's I mean, Scaleworks itself has made, I think, 17 or 18 individual acquisitions. I mean, right. they would be eight or nine primaries and then add-ons into these businesses. And those add-ons could be for revenue or for features or along those lines to, to fill out something that makes the business more effective. So, I mean, my first alliance with Scaleworks in San Antonio was a business called Assembler. Um, it's a, it was a code repository management system. So that means when you're developing software, you develop that software in a code repository and then you commit it. Uh, and that's your software product. I mean, you don't just, like, it's, it's not bricks. This is the scaffolding that holds the code um, repository and the source code together. And that business was 11 years old when we acquired it, so it was a mature business. It was showing marginal growth, but it had technology challenges. I mean, it was the leader in a code repository system called Subversion. When the prevailing sort of use in the market was around Git, which are names you'll have heard, we were effectively the world's best manufacturer of bell-bottom trousers when the whole world wanted skinny <laughs> jeans. Um, right. So, uh, you know, we came in, um, we ran that business profitably every month. We grew it from about three to about eight million dollars over um, over the period of three years. We built a strong team with strong engineering function. We created a category which was around sort of the security around source code uh, at that time. Every other day, we were seeing um, a large amount of hacks happening within PlayStation, Uber, and a lot of those hacks, like 
we paint this picture that it's like some you know state-sponsored cyber terrorism entity in a basement in in, in Shenzhen. It's not. It's some lazy um, engineer leaving the Amazon Web Services login details in an, in an open code repository, a public code repository in GitHub. Like these things are. They're right. imminently avoidable uh, right. if you just put standard work processes in place. So we did that. I mean, you scan, we scanned repositories to see is there credentials in here for, for for your hosting partners. You know, are there known trojans that you're you're taking out of uh, like codependency libraries and putting into your your actual source code in the face of all these hacks and all this huge loss of of reputation and damage in these businesses. The market. They, they, they saw exactly what we were trying to do. Um, so we showed growth, we showed the potential for profitability, we showed a defensible category that was relevant in the market. And, and uh, you know, we, we sold that business three years later for a, a, much more than we paid for it. So, uh, and that's it. I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't a, a billion dollar exit or anything like that, don't get me wrong. <laughs> right, um, right. But like it's a, from a transactional perspective, like as I said, it was, it was many factors above what we paid for it. Because we were sensible about how we wanted to run it, we didn't raise like a hundred million dollars, and then firehose out of sales and marketing, and then have and then compel ourselves into having to get that back at an X factor above that to show a return to our investors. No, common sense. Chargeify was the next one, and you know, this was a billing and subscription management tool. Again, we acquired that. It was in 2017. That business had been founded in 2009. Strong area, the whole sort of online billing area. Now, when you look at subscriptions, everything from like the the, the, the business journal. I mean, your subscription-based business that deals in content. Very important, you know, that you're able to, to to bill out like a utility on that, and you're not forgetting to bill people or billing them the wrong amount or you know, all these different things. That's what Chargeify did. Right. Bought that business again. Uh, you know, we, we ran profitability in that business for the first couple of years. Well, we made the product what we wanted it to be. We found a category which was B2B SaaS. So, you know, your software as a service subscription based models. Think of uh, Azure, uh, mm-hmm. think of you know, Office 365 from Microsoft, mm-hmm. and specializing in that area, building, you know, work process around servicing those customers, building integrations for those customers so they could access the likes of Salesforce or HubSpot or different tools. And once we got it there and we, we started seeing, you know, super normal growth, we started putting dollars behind it to drive that growth, which was successful in a controlled form. Format. And, uh, you know, again, ultimately, we, we got a, a many factors back in terms of what our investment was against it. We sort of built the value. And that value wasn't around hockey stick growth. It was around common sense business practices to drive that growth. It was around creating categories and, and, and niches within the industry that we knew we could be successful in and then executing on them and building strong teams. Right. Teams here in San Antonio, you know, so you have continuity of sort of service as far as the, the staff are concerned, and everyone's as aiming at a common mission. Paul Lynch joining us. Next, he shares what attracted him to Import IO when Texas Business Minds continues. Texas Mutual Insurance Company cares about your injured employees as much as you do. With our proactive and compassionate workers' comp claims handling, taking care of your people is how we take care of your business. Business is better with Texas Mutual. 
it's valuable to point out, and I think you loop into it right now, is that you know as you've gone through enters and exits with these companies, and some you've held on to longer, et cetera, et cetera, the team that you have built have probably gotten better and better at executing on these plans as you, you know what I mean, as you continue yeah. to move through. I mean, you'll now be taking on a third, right? I think this is yeah. the third for import.io, and you've got team members who've probably been with you yep. in various capacities throughout. So now you guys have got a real... It wasn't that you didn't have a system before, but now you've hit the system a couple of times. You've got to sort of feel good about the sort of script, if you will, for how you're going to run Import.io. But I did want to ask you, what drew you to it? I understand all the, I, I always joke that I, when it comes to tech, I have knowledge two miles long and one inch deep. So I understand what you're saying, but just this far. But I am curious as sort of what drew you all to Import.io? What made it attractive to bring it into it? So there was large growth in this business, um, Import.io. Well, what is Import.io, I guess, is the first thing to, to explain prior to saying what drew us to it. It's a data extraction tool. So if you look at um, look at e-commerce, look at look at online retail, look at um, all these kind of newer services that are happening at a, at a retail and grocery level, your deliveries, your curbside pickups and everything else, this is a very, very, very competitive space. We're talking about single-digit margins in most cases around retail, so it's a volume-based game. It's extremely competitive as far as the um, as far as the competitive landscape. Kroger, Walmart, these kind of guys all working together. So you want to make sure that you're not pricing yourself out of a specific demographic. Um, so what you want to be, you, you go online and, and you look to extract that data and you look to to put it into a common sense insight based format, so you know that your pricing is is relevant in the market. Okay, it's easy to explain. It's difficult to execute. So you walk into a, a Walmart tomorrow with a with a pad and a pen and start taking down the prices of everything that's in there. See how long you'll remain in there before security throw you out when you explain <laughs> to them that you're taking down all the prices and you're going to go next door and sell those to HEB. Okay. Right. So what import does is like we extract that data from public facing websites and then we put it into a format and uh, and people purchase it from us I look at it as being very consumer driven um, the more information we can give uh, the the better it is for the consumer because it drives competition do the companies we uh, that, that we're extracting this data from do they like this no do they look to acquire data from their competing businesses? Yes. So it, it is that push and pull kind of scenario. E-commerce has always been a been a factor, okay? The internet has gone through a lot of different sort of um, you know, phases. Payments, the security around payments, the the security protocols around the credit card companies and everything has made e-commerce a lot uh, or online transactions or digital commerce a lot less risky than it previously has been. So, you know, the rise of of, of Amazon and Prime uh, and the convenience of such has, again, driven an awful lot of acceptance of this as a field. So when we look at businesses like Import that, is, that support this and, and sell into it, it's always really interesting because this is a category that we feel is going to grow. Yeah. It's not a shrinking category. COVID yeah. gave it a bit of a shot in the arm, right? But a lot of the gains in terms of value of these businesses made over COVID, as you know, they've been lost post-COVID. I mean, right. the market went like this, but then it adjusted, you know? And you saw these insane valuations coming out around Shopify and these ones. You know, a lot of the value that they made over COVID has actually been surrendered. Yeah. Um, and they're going back to this common sense kind of growth. And it's growing as the market grows, as we see broadband proliferation worldwide grow, as we see payments grow. But this is this is something I'm betting on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to go out and like, let me, let me give you a great example here. Like um, COVID occurred and this online conferencing 
all the conferences ended, all the, you know, your your SaaS stocks and your whatever, like they, they, no one could go to them because of COVID, right? All these firms that were delivering online conferencing did this. That's yeah. not something I'm betting on. Right? Not <laughs> like, term, no. no, no. Exactly. Not, but I'm betting on the fact that as we proliferate broadband worldwide, as we bring the other three billion on, as per the um, you know Starlink and the Google initiatives, we will see additional consumers coming into the space, and that market will grow. Yeah, that makes that, sense to me. That makes sense. As yeah. we do that, you're going to have like additional public-facing data that's be extractable and will have a value. Data is the new oil. That's really tacky. I'm sorry for saying it, out, <laughs> but it's the truth. Okay, <laughs> data is the new oil. You mine that, and you will find value. And there'll always be people who will want to consume the data that you can mine. Okay, so. That's what drew us to import it. It's in a growth market. It's not in a hockey stick growth market. It's in a sensible growth market. It's not specific to a city, state, country. It's a global growth market. The complexity and the tools around it are improving. This is a tool that, you know, is very complex. It's the, the underlying code base is extremely strong. The product and deliverables are strong. They're, the team is great, and it's a global team. So we have like a, we have a fair amount of staff in the U.S. We're building a management leadership function here with a go-to-market in San Antonio. There's a large service delivery division that's in the U.K. We have a large sort of um, what we call technical operations, which deals with everything from you know, customer success and ticket management all the way through to uh, to, to code integrity in, in India. So looking at this, this is a very, very scalable business. And my old mentor, not a SaaS guy, like uh, he was, he started in, in, in manufacturing and ended up in telecoms. I mean, he always maintained that, you know, if you walk into a headwind, it's always more difficult. If there's a wind behind your back, it'll get you from me to be you know, a lot quicker, with a lot less effort. There's a win behind this. We're not going into a headwind. We're not trying to convince people that that this is something that they're going to require. That's already established. The first time you ordered milk because you didn't have, you know, milk for cereal and it arrived at three o'clock in the morning and was sitting on your front stoop when you woke up that day, you, you sort of figured out that e-commerce was going to be arrived. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. So that's what... That, that, that's that what makes perfect sense. It makes sense. Us to it. Like, we, we, you don't have to be that clever. Right. I mean, I think often we overanalyze these things. Right. We try to overspeculate these things. Thus, when Warren Buffett, like he, he gave him, he talks about just standard kind of ebbs and flows uh, as far as the markets are concerned, as opposed to analysts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the point. And, and I think that's what the listeners are going to really enjoy about our conversation is that this is, you know, a lot of times when we hear about when business owners of insurance companies, law firms, traditional retailers, those kind of things, when they hear about the tech space and the venture equity space, the private uh, the money space, a lot of it just seems so disconnected from the business life that they lead. And one of the things that I loved about what Scaleworks does and about how you and I talked about this before was these are the same languages that they've used for generations. There's technology that they may not fully understand, and, and some of those things need to be explained in a more simple way. But the underlying growth, the underlying evaluation of businesses is coming back to that place. Place. And I think the listeners yes. are really going to enjoy that. I really enjoy and the, like we talk about the rule of forty um, to, to those that like from a software perspective to explain. Yeah. I mean, if your business is not growing, you should have forty percent of your revenue as EBITDA as profit. You know, if you're growing at twenty percent, twenty percent profit. 
if you're growing at forty percent, it's okay to have like it's okay to be running that at a you know at break even. These are rules that have been around since again. Classic, Adam Smith, classic like. stuff, man. Classic. So, somehow we got confused. So I mean, that's the stuff that I. I mean, that's one of the things that I think has kept a lot of traditional business people disconnected from the tech world is that the language doesn't seem the same. But I, my argument has been in your conversation and I, our conversation has been a reminder that truly, when you're in the market in the real way, thinking about sustainable businesses. It's the same, same language. So, Paul, thank you so much, man. I can't, I enjoy chatting with you. I could do this all day. So I (laughs) thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, man. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on it. It's been great. Thank you for downloading Texas Business Minds, presented by the Texas Business Journals and brought to you by Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider committed to helping companies build a stronger, safer Texas.